Hello and welcome to Explore, the podcast where we learn from the best investors and founders around the world. For the first episode of season two, I'm lucky to be welcoming Kevin Jovich, a former professional NFL athlete that became an entrepreneur. Kevin has founded Circles, an app that helps you to find the right places at the right time to have a drink. Kevin is also a top voice in startup for LinkedIn, where he's publishing content to help entrepreneurs and startups be more successful. First of all, Kevin, massive thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. And to introduce yourself, can you tell us who you are, what was your dream job as a kid, and what do you do now? I love that. Thanks for that intro. That was very kind of you. And uh, just, I guess before we even get started, I just want to give you kudos for reaching out to me on LinkedIn, setting this up. And there's a lot of people that don't do that. A lot of people don't ask. A lot of people don't just shoot shots. And so kudos to you. And I'm glad to be here. We're going to have fun. So who am I? Um, I live in the Bay Area. I founded a company called Circles. And uh, yeah, you kind of touched on what we do. When I was a kid, what did I want to be? I think, I think every kid wants to be a professional athlete, I think, at some point in their lives. And then most of the time, either their genetics or just life doesn't allow for that to happen. So that was always a dream. Um, my mom likes to show me this book, this yearbook when I was in kindergarten. And it says, you know, you say what your name is and then you say what you want to be when you grow up. And I said, I want to be a daddy. And I'm 37 years old and I have no kids yet. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But yeah, those, those two things stuck out, stuck out to me the most about what I wanted to be a professional football player, a daddy. I did one of those things. I haven't done the other, but we'll see what the future holds. That's great. And it's uh, wonderful that you've been able to achieve one of your dreams because I think a lot of people are struggling, you know, to at least get close to some of their childhood dreams. Um, so I think it's amazing. So let's start in 2010. Um, you get out of university, I think. And you become a pro athlete in the NFL. How did that happen? And you know, what, what went through your mind when you've done that? So just taking it back a couple of years before that. So yeah, in university or college in the States, we call it football is very competitive. And it's very hard just to even get to college and play football. There's so many talented players. And just like in life, right? It's like we have to have a coach or a situation that just believes in us that says, I'm going to give this person a shot, right? So in college, my first three years, I barely played at all. And I actually quit the team. So this, this is not like a known thing. I quit the team for a couple months just because when you worked your whole life for something, and then for three years, you don't play when you're used to being the star, you know, as a child, that was really hard. So I quit the team. That was a super low moment in my life. And my parents just kind of encouraged me, hey, you got to finish what you start. You know, this was kind of like a common thing. When you're 18 or 19, you don't think about that sort of stuff. But that was kind of their conversation with me. And so, I, you know, as the kind of the months went on, I said, you know what? I got to finish this. I got to I got to finish this college experience. It doesn't matter how much success I have, but I know I want to finish it. Right. Because they're paying for your education. They're paying your own scholarship. So I go back to my head coach. I tell him, hey, I want to come back on the team. But there's a, there's a, there's a but here. I want to switch positions. So I was playing safety, wanted to play receiver. It's a completely different position. It's like playing defense versus offense in, in football it's, or soccer, right? He said, all right. And I then went on to have an amazing last two and a half years in college. And I broke all of our school records for receiving, which gave me a chance to finally get on the NFL radar. So that in and of itself was like this, talk about the lowest man on the totem pole, the guy on the team that was just maybe the worst that he quit, he come back on. And then all of a sudden to be catapulted into the star of the team or one of the best players. And I'll never forget, you know, I, we have this preseason in the NFL. I ended up going to the 49ers, which just is the local team here, which is unbelievable because you could go any team. You don't really get to choose which team you, you get to play for. And I'll never forget when I made the team on the 49ers, just putting on the helmet was, was crazy because I had watched this team when I was a child, right? 
My grandpa was watching them. My dad was smoking cigarettes in the house watching them back when they used to do that. So I called my high school coach and then I called my dad. And that was kind of the, the beginning of that childhood dream and my first day in the NFL. And were you scared at all? Like you step out of college, you're right out, you have your degree. Most people go in the corporate world, they, you know, gonna take a role somewhere or, or like create a company, uh, but they're gonna have some, some sense of security around the salary, around the money that's gonna come. Like, were you scared at all just going to sport and saying, okay, you know, I've studied for a long time and now I'm just gonna do sport? Not at all. I think that's all I knew, right? It's like I was in college. I wasn't going to college to get a finance degree or to start a company. It was like, this is my pot of gold, right? I'm going to go play professional sports. I'm going to do it for 20 years. I'm going to retire. And then who knows what I'll do after that. But was I scared? Not at all. I think I was actually more scared. You know, the NFL, nobody quits professional sports. Nine times out of 10, they usually get fired. They usually get replaced by someone better than them or someone younger or cheaper or all three. And so after three years, I was bouncing around a couple of teams. You know, you talk about security, you're making good money, but you could be cut the next week. And then all of a sudden you're back home getting no money, right? I was more scared leaving that behind and saying, okay, I don't have any professional skills. All I've been doing my whole life is education and learning, but that's, it's very little application to the real world and business, but I had that. And then I had just played sports, right? So that was more of a scary transition going from, oh shoot, I don't have this football thing anymore. What am I going to do? And so how did it happen for you? Like, were you fired from the league or did you just decided, okay, it's time for me now to just go in the corporate world and find a role? They, they don't call it fired in the NFL. They call it, you got released, right? So you got cut or you got released. It's you got fired. So yes, you get fired. You have to have this realization as a person. And it's just like with a startup, right? It's like, do I continue to do this thing that is working to a degree, but not to the degree that you wanted or envisioned? Or is it time to pivot in the startup world? Or is it time to find a new career and pivot that way? And I had made a little money in the NFL. And I was thinking, man, I spent a lot of the money that I made. And this is what everybody does. It's very common. And my thought was, okay, if I'm doing this, other people are doing this. We need to have financial education and financial literacy in NFL in professional sports so that these people that make money and have worked their entire lives to make this money can hold on to it. And then when they're done playing, actually have something to show for it in their bank account. So I became a financial advisor with the idea of being the biggest and the best financial advisor to NFL players. This was kind of my goal. But then again, you know, life is funny, right? You have these, these goals or these things that you want to accomplish and then life throws curveballs at you. And you realize, wait, I want to be a financial advisor to NFL players. There's not even that many of these guys. Like you might have just a small handful. So it was very hard to grow a book of business dedicated to professional athletes, which is what I set out to do. And I quickly pivoted to tech founders. I'm in Silicon Valley. Who's creating the most wealth is people starting companies. It's young kids because they're kids half the time starting a company i'm seeing their bank accounts because i'm working at wells fargo and all of a sudden they're getting these wires that pop in for 20 million dollars because they had this liquidity event these people actually need my help and so that's kind of where this whole startup it started and i realized wow there's this whole nother ecosystem out there that i'm unfamiliar with but I'm managing some of these guys' monies and some of these women's monies. I think I can do something, right? I don't know what it is, but these people aren't smarter than me. They're not better than me. If they can do it, there's something that I too can do. That was just kind of this feeling that was growing over the course of five years. And I, I love it because like talking about mindsets really quickly. So you were obviously a competitor because you wouldn't have made it otherwise to the NFL. 
and like you go into financial advising and you're like, I'm going to be the best. There's no other way that I can do something without being the best. That's the way you behave. And then same thing when you come to do that for the tech entrepreneurs, you want to be the best at supporting them with the financials. So um, how did you find in your career that, you know, having been a professional athlete helped you in terms of how you think about yourself, your goal setting, the way you behave, like how did that help yeah. you uh, when you were a financial advisor? This is a great question because like, as you're talking, I want to let the audience know, I didn't know anything about finance when I started, right? But what you touched on, it's like, as an athlete, the thing that I learned most is like consistency. If you want to get good at something, you want to get good at chess, right? Let's just say there's no excuse right now. You can be a great chess player. You can go on YouTube. You can learn from people on Twitch that are grandmasters teaching the game, right? You want to be good in finance. You can do the same thing. So what I do in startups, it's like, I didn't know anything about that either. But just like my athletic career, where it's like, here's the schedule, Monday through Friday, be disciplined, be consistent, learn. All the information is out there. And, you know, it's 2023. I don't know when this is going to air. It's, it's near the end of the year. But like, if you want to be great at anything, there's so much information out there. Put on the blinders, say no to a couple things. Let your friends know, hey, for the next six months, like, this is really important to me and I just want to get good at this. And that's all you got to do, you know? And, and I think that mindset I've carried over from athletics, did it in finance and it's still a journey as a startup founder, but I feel like I'm rinse, wash and repeat kind of the same idea. And were you competing against yourself or against others? Cause I feel like that's a completely different thing. So are you trying to grow skills or grow, you know, a business? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's both, right? It's like you have a standard as an individual that if you don't meet that standard and it, it's almost every single day, you ever have at the end of a day where you're like, I didn't have a good day. I don't feel that good. Right. And it doesn't mean every day has to be a 10 out of 10, but there's a certain standard if you want to be great or excellent that you want to meet consistently. So I think there's that element where you're constantly kind of competing against yourself. But people are people, right? So you're going to get into an industry. It's natural to look at competitors. It's natural to look at other people on your team. You know, if you're in sales and say, oh, he sold or she sold this, I want to sell a little more, right? I think there's just some, some natural sense for competitive people. Doesn't mean that you're nasty. Or it doesn't mean that you don't help other people. I totally think that's actually the way that you win. But high performers are competitive with themselves, but also in the arena in which they're fighting. And that that's why I love um, how sports translate well into business. I mean, I've I was a almost a professional skateboarder when I stopped and you know went to do some studying at university. And I think like. As you said, of course, you're going to compete against yourself, but also against others. And that's the reality of things because you want to become the best and you want to be known for like your skills and everything. Um, and I think sports teaches you a lot that, you know, university can't teach you. But uh, so let's get back to the story. Uh, so you were in a good position as a financial advisor, earning what I think is relatively good money. Um, and then you decided to leave everything and said, okay, I'm going to build a startup. How did that happen, actually? You know, I wish I wish it was more well thought out. But like life, again, we have these curveballs. So like touching on what you said, as a financial advisor, you grow this portfolio over time, right? And so I had done that. So it is hard to leave something that pays you a residual income. I just think people, at times in your life, you got to bet on yourself. There's going to be a moment in your per, in your professional career when you're going to kind of look yourself in the in the mirror one day and say, "Do I want to keep doing this? Is this what I want to keep doing the rest of my life?" And you have two choices: you can keep doing it, and it's not that's not a bad thing. I think there's a lot of people out there that do that, and they go on to have totally normal, happy lives. But I think with the young generation, especially, it's kind of like man, I, w I only have one life. I want to do something that 
I love doing. I don't even, half the time, we don't even know what that is, but we're going to have that realization. And that's kind of the realization that I had a couple years back. So it wasn't even a, I'm going to have all my ducks in a row and then I'm going to leave. It was actually the complete opposite. It was, I've just been feeling this way for a long time. And I know what I'm doing right now isn't what I want to be doing for a long time. So I'm going to just pull the plug on this thing that I'm doing and I'm going to plug it into this other thing. And I'm going to totally jump out of the airplane, put my parachute on and try to put it on before I hit the ground. And that's what I did. Yeah. So you're definitely a risk taker. That's, that's for sure. Uh, because you had that, you know, comfortable position and then you said, I'm going to create a company. Um, I think you said before that you cut up the startup patient basically by, you know, managing these people's money, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense. Can you elaborate a bit more on circles? You know, what submission is, what do you want to do with it? Yeah, I'd love to. So I think like our thesis is, and I don't know how it is in Europe, but in the States, it's like, you shouldn't have to hop in an Uber or a rideshare and go across town and show up at a venue, a bar or a club or anything. And that venue not be what you were expecting. Cause it takes a lot of work, right? You got to take a shower. You got to spend some money, you got to spend time. And it's like, why, if we look at discovery, city discovery, why is it that way? And this is really the foundation of our thesis. And so what we wanted to create is an app that allowed you to see and feel exactly what a venue is like before you got there. And so that's what Circles is. We're starting in nightlife. Um, because it's important when you have a consumer app to start very niche. You want to start niche geographically and you want to start niche in the type of either user you're serving or venue you're serving. Because it's easier to do well when your focus is very small. And I think a lot of times startup founders, they try to take on the world, try to do too much. So we're focusing on that niche and we're excited about it. We feel like you know, the, the average user is now using TikTok and reels. We're very visual when it comes to discovery. It's not how it used to be 20 years ago with Yelp and Google maps and Google maps is still nice, but like, we don't want to read long reviews anymore. We don't even pictures are okay, but we would rather see a video. We don't care that somebody said two years ago that this place is fun. I want to see what it looks like right now. Right? So there's, there's kind of this change of consumer behavior with technology shifts and abilities. And they're both kind of merging into this ability to be able to finally do that. And we're excited to be, I don't want to say on the forefront of it, but yeah, allowing people to discover through video, allowing people to get real time updates. That's what the user wants. And so that's what we're going to give them. So I'm picking up on a word you're saying now. You're saying we. When you refer to the startup, are you the only funder or do you have a co-founder with you? Um, no, we have a team. There's six of us on the team. Um, but I think this also comes from my, 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 t my sports background. People that talk about I too often, it's not good. Right? It's like it takes a village to create something special. And, you know, I don't know, you may be doing it solo right now. Eventually, you're not going to be able to keep doing it solo if you know, you want to go from an A to an A plus, right? There's going to be half, you know, you're going to have to hire specialists or people that are good at certain things that you were not good at. So the team is six. Um, we got a, we got a designer who's amazing. And if you've ever seen our application, our design is, I feel like really, really cool and simple. And we got a product marketer. We got a couple of engineers and a person who's in charge of growth. And I try to operate as the CEO, like I don't like micromanagers. I didn't like when people always told me, Hey, do it this way, do it that way. You know, tell somebody, Hey, here's the thing we're trying to solve for and let the person that you hired solve for that thing. Right? So it's like, you're telling them kind of like, here's what to do. Here's what we're trying to do, but we're not really telling you how to do it. And so I look at this team as we're all founders. You know, maybe there's two quote unquote co-founders, but this is the founding team. And yeah, that's the way I like to operate. And I think the people that, you know, are working on this with me feel the same way. 
So obviously, if you have six people already, it means like you have had to, you know, sort of find some money to spend on the company and finance these people, pay for the salary and be able to, you know, develop the app and everything, which I know is expensive, um, you know, working for the, on the tech industry. How did you go about that? Did you put your own money into the company or did you already like right away find some maybe seed investors to follow you? Yeah. So there was some of that, some of my own in the beginning, but remember, right? I didn't know anything about startups in the beginning. So I didn't even really know about venture. I knew about venture capital. I knew what a, I knew what a VC was. They invest in people's companies, right? But I didn't know that there was such thing as a B2B VC that only invested in B2B businesses. There's a, there's a B2C VC that only invests in business to consumer. And then you can break it down by industry, right? Some VCs only invest in consumer social apps. Some other VCs invest in biotech, right? So it's all over the spectrum. And then you got different stages. Some investors invest in the pre-seed, right? Before you even have a product, this is an idea. Some investors are investing in the growth stage and growth in VC is way later. So you already have product market fit. You got tons of either revenue or users. And these guys are writing $100 million checks, $50 million checks, right? They're all VCs, but I didn't know the difference. So there was that thing. And then there was also, you know, they always say, you know, VCs always say this, oh, the best way to get a meeting with me is through a warm intro. This, you're going to hear this all the time if you're a founder trying to raise money. The problem is, who knows VCs? Like we're, you don't have a Rolodex of 25 VCs that you can just be like, oh, you know, Melanie knows this guy. Let me just text Melanie. That's not how life works. So it was very, very hard for me even to get my first connections in that industry. And I did a post on LinkedIn about this in San Francisco downtown at South Park. There was this cafe and around this cafe was all the prominent VC firms. So you had like Kleiner Perkins, there was like six of them, Excel, there's like a bunch of heavy hitters were all right there. And so they would go to this cafe for lunch and they would meet founders that they've had already invested in. So that's called your portfolio companies, right? So a, a VC invests in a founder, then that's their portfolio company. So they were meeting with either potential portfolio companies or existing ones. And I would sit there on my computer, this is in the very early days, and I would listen because it was a very like small cafe. I'd sit like right, sit would be sitting right next to me and I'd listen to the conversation and I was trying to get their email addresses or just try to get their name and what, and what firm they worked for. And I would go every day and I'd probably get like one per day, but that's literally how I started. Then I would send them a creepy email. I'd say, Hey, here's my name. This is kind of creepy, but like, I just overheard you talking at Cafe Centro in South Park. I'm creating this thing and I'd love to talk to you about it. And half the time they'd say, oh, that's interesting, but I only invest in biotech, right? And I'd be like, oh, do you know anybody that invests in consumers that I should reach out to? So that's how I even got any of my first meetings for our team, which was pretty, pretty interesting to learn that. I try to share that story now as like not a tactic to go raise money. I don't think that's necessarily a smart or a wise tactic because it's extremely time consuming. Um, more as like, Hey, when you go all in on something, you're just going to get creative with how you figure it out. Right. And that was one example of that. I then learned, okay, if you're creating a consumer app, which is circles is a consumer app, you're not going to be able to raise venture capital. I don't want to say 100% of the time, but I'll say 99% of the time as a first-time founder with no traction. So you don't have users and this is your first company you've ever founded. You're not going to be able to raise venture capital without one of those boxes being checked and probably two, probably both of those. And so when I learned that as the expenses kind of piled up, it was like, okay, we're going to need to raise money. And I learned all about a pre-seed round or a family and friends round or an angel round. These are all kind of the same thing. And so that's what we did. And, you know, how do we do that? Put together a pitch deck. And if you're a founder, you're going to go through way too many pitch decks. I have a really cool pitch deck template. So anybody that's listening to this, 
send me an email and I'd be happy to share that after this call. But you send out a pitch deck and you literally go through all the Rolodex of people that you know. Anybody that's somewhat successful or you think has some sort of disposable income to invest in your idea, you say, here's what we're building. I'm excited about it. Here's what the future is going to look like for our company. And you try to collect 10K checks, 25K checks. And we probably did about 60 of those pitches. I'd say half of the people passed and the other half invested. And so if you don't want to release the numbers, that's fine as well. But like how much is there money you raise or how many months of cash did you had when you raised your first fund to be able to then pay the salaries of your employees? Yeah, we raised 300K in, in the US, which is not that much money, but it's, it's a small pre-seed round. And the thing about, here's the thing about being a startup founder, you can't pay your early employees the same money they're going to get at Google, right? Like you want to work on a startup and you know, I'm a non-technical co-founder, right? I don't write code. So what is my job? My first job? Well, my first job is I got to convince a CTO or a co-founder who's technical, who writes code to leave their job that pays more than we can afford and join on this idea. And that's your first job as a co-founder. There's other things you have to do and there are, but like that's your first major big hurdle as a non-technical co-founder. How are you going to convince somebody to pay them half of what they're getting right now who can write code? And there's something that I've learned like also if you're a non-technical co-founder, you don't have a lot of money, which is the majority of anybody. You have this app idea. You don't have to start by initiating a conversation with engineers. And this is a common thing that most people think they have to do. I have this idea. I got to go get engineers that build it, right? I'd say most people think that's kind of the process, but think about it. If you're building a house, you wouldn't just say, oh, let's go grab some carpenters and just go build a house. You wouldn't do that. You'd sit back, you'd have an architect sketch out a design of a house, right? Then you'd go back and forth with you and your wife or your husband. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, let's change that. It's the same sort of iteration that you can do without any engineering involved at all. You hire a designer. A designer will bring your vision to life, right? And it's going to be way faster. So you don't even need to write a single line of code. You hire a sick, badass designer, talk about what you're building. And in two days, they will design on Figma all the screens of your entire app. Then what you do? is you go talk to potential users that you think may use your product and you say, Hey, what do you think of this? What if, what would happen if you click this button? Right. And you're gathering all this feedback, then you're making iterations and changes with the designer. Once you have, okay, this thing is hitting this thing people are resonating with it. They it's, if they're clicking this button, this is the exact expected result that they're thinking. That's when we go hire some engineers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, actually being a non-technical funder, first, did you have like someone helping you out except your employees, uh, the people you hired? Or did you just go and said, okay, you know, that's fine. I can just run it as a CEO. I'll employ these people. They'll do it for me. Uh, because the thing is like, I mean, of course you don't have to code to understand how an app works. But like equally, if those two people on the entire IP, what's a reason why they wouldn't just go outside of your company and say, you know what, that's a great idea, Kevin. I'll just do it, build it myself, and then I'll release it, and you know, I'll build my own startup. Like, how did that work out for you? That's a good question, and I think the foundation of any relationship, especially business, but also like marriage, especially that too, is trust. So. Ideas are a dime a dozen and people think ideas are everything and they hold on to them and, oh, this is, we all have amazing ideas. It's, it's how you bring them to life. It's how you figure out distribution. It's how you actually build the thing that separates the talkers from the walkers. And in this situation that you asked for, if you get a co-founder, you know, you should incorporate your business. Let's say the co-founder agrees to come on. The IP belongs to the company, right? The IP doesn't belong to me or to you, it belongs to the company. 
And that prevents somebody who's technical from just kind of stealing that IP and running off on their own. But even before that, don't get in a business relationship that you don't 100% trust the person, their intentions. Doesn't mean that it won't go wrong because these things go wrong all the time. My very, very first co-founder on this idea is no longer working on the project anymore. And these things are, are common, you know? Got it. So let's go back to circles a bit more because like we've covered so far the creation. How did you come up with the idea and build the initial team, raise, you know, 300K? Okay, now we've got two engineers working on it. What does the app look like? I've seen it, but I wanted your version of it. How does the app look like? And, you know, what does it do exactly? Like, how does it work? Yeah. So right now is not what it's going to look like, but I'll tell you what it's going to look like. So right now we're just in San Francisco and we're just with ambassadors, right? These ambassadors are content creators. So they're creating a bunch of content for the app. And in its simplest form, there's this TikTok style feed that I would call it. And this TikTok style feed is only of venues. They're called vibes. So these are all that other users have taken of different venues around the city. You can hold your finger down on this vibe feed to get more details of the place. And there's also this live capacity meter that we'll be putting on that will show you over this video in the corner how busy or slow the venue is at that moment, right? So you're visually getting a sense for what the place looks like. Then you're getting this real-time data component to show you how busy or slow the venue is at that moment. So that's kind of like one facet, one tab. The other tab is this live map and kind of think about it like, it's almost like a, do you use Waze? I do, yeah. Right, so it's almost like a Waze thing, right? It's like this live map where you can see these, these uh, point, you know, these POIs on this map, which are the venues. You can see how busy they are just by looking. And we're going to allow just on ways how other users, there's this community, there's this like community check-in. There's like this community reporting, this community driven, like real-time insight component to ways that we're bringing to circles. So in ways you can report a cop, right? You can do the same sort of thing with our application, reporting line lengths, reporting certain types of music. So it's bringing this real-time component to this map. So that's, that's kind of the two main screens that users will interact with. The other um, kind of cool thing that we're about to release is the ability to request live video. So a user can go drop in somewhere and you can click a button, which is called a vibe check. And then other users can request a live video from the person who's out at the venue. And do you incentivize at all the person taking a live video? Does it have any you know, incentive to do it? Yeah, I think you have to figure that out, right? Let's use another example because I like using examples. Uh, Wikipedia. This is a perfect example. Who the heck writes on Wikipedia? Like, why are these people doing this? Only 1% of the users are like actually keeping Wikipedia current. There's a small subset of users that actually likes this sort of behavior. And I think when you're building something like this, it's our job to figure out who are these users that want to do this sort of stuff, that enjoy creating content, that enjoy helping other people out before it even helps themselves. And so that's been a process that has taken a lot of time to try to figure out who they're gonna be and then contact them and then get them on board. We're also incentivizing them um, with small actually amounts of the company. So small shares in the company for these early content creators, um, because we believe going forward, you know, big data shouldn't go to just big companies. You know, the, the end user should be compensated for the work that they're doing in any platform. And for too long, the big tech companies have just collected data or collected usage or collected videos or collected any content that was created by the end user and made money off it and then didn't do anything for the end user, but give them followers or badges or these things that don't really mean anything. Yeah, I got you. So. If we go back to the name, which is Circles, I guess it came up with the idea of a community of people helping them, you know, helping other people to try and achieve a common goal. Is that the case? Yes. We're also in the future. There's a lot of things that come 
So this is just like the very beginning, but you're also going to be able to subscribe to these circles. So a circle can be a neighborhood. It can be a venue. You can create a circle of friends that get your updates, like a small little circle. And so that's, that's really where that comes in. And what we're trying to do is we're just trying to get you more ingrained with your actual connections, your actual friends that live nearby. Instead of, we all have a lot of maybe followers on TikTok and Instagram, and I think they, that works good for those platforms. But what about the real life component? What about the in-person meeting up with? That's a different group or a different circle or a different subset of connection. And that's who we really want to cater to. So you're going to create this circle, which is that, that person or that group, which is that smaller. doesn't mean they're better friends. Just means they probably live closer and you probably go out with them a little bit more often. And then the ability with the venues, right? Subscribing to a certain venue or circle to get updates from that venue. So you can get an update anytime a video is posted there. Anytime someone checks in there, anytime that venue wants to push a special, whether it's about drinks or an event, you'll get that push notification. So that's kind of the theory behind the name. And so the business model, is it to allow venues to advertise an event, advertise their restaurant, for example, on the platform so that more people come to the restaurant? Is that uh, how we think about how to bring revenue? Yeah, so... So here's a, here's another misconception. So like when, when you have a consumer app, so let's think about popular consumer apps, LinkedIn, Instagram, maybe Snapchat, TikTok, the very, very thing in the beginning, it's okay to think about business models. And I think that's prudent and you should do that. But well before that, you have to hit what's called product market fit. You got to build something that people actually like and use. Before you even think about making a dollar, and that is such a big hurdle. So all of our focus is on the product and making that beautiful and valuable. And the reason that you need to focus on that first is let's say, let's say in my mind, we say, okay, our business model is going to be, we're going to be ticket affiliates. So we're going to have on our live map, we're going to have a tab and you can click it and it's going to show you all the live events happening. And then you can, you can order, you can buy a ticket and then we're a ticket affiliate through Ticketmaster and we get a cut, right? So this is an idea. Who goes to say though, Circles even has a live map in the product in two years, right? There's so much evolution that takes place. If we think about Instagram in day one, all Instagram was, they didn't have stories. They didn't have videos. They didn't have anything. It was like, just post a photo and put a filter. That's all it was. Now it's became much more than just posting photos. It's actually a community. We send memes to our friends. We're in stories most of the time. And their business model has came in ads. And if you looked at the ads today versus maybe what they would have been a long time ago, it's completely different, right? And so you figure out the product, you iterate until you have a winning product and you have product market fit. Then at that point, we look at how do we back into a business model that doesn't take away from the user experience but actually can enhance it and allows the business to make money. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I think two focuses for now are building a community because like your app is going to run on the community. Otherwise, it's probably not going to work out. And then the product itself, that makes a lot of sense. And so in terms of numbers today, so I think the app is available on iOS and Android. I'm pretty sure it is. Can you it, confirm? It is available in if you have an iPhone, so just iOS. Now, for the next month, two months, I'd say, we're essentially not marketing in it. We're not trying to grow it. We have a group of ambassadors and content creators that are just creating some content. So when in maybe February, we start marketing the application, people can come on and there's going to be a lot of active stuff on there. Um, so yeah, we're available in the App Store. February is kind of going to kind of be like the quote unquote public launch. But launches are funny. You put it out in the wild. It's not this one day thing. I think some companies think you just kind of launch and you just grow. You got to put it out there and then you got to talk to your users. So today we got a product discovery call with one of our users in 45 minutes. And every opportunity is just to learn, right? So we're going to sit and talk to him and say, hey, what are you liking about it? What are you not liking about it? If you could wave a magic wand and add anything to service, what would you add? What's, un what's not useful about it? Why are you not using it? Right? All these questions. 
Yeah, definitely you have to be customer first, especially if you're going to run on, you know, a big amount of people using the app. So I was about to ask how many downloads you have so far, but I think it's not relevant too much before kind of the public launches that you will plan for February. Um, so actually, I'm going to follow that closely because I think it's going to be interesting. Um, so just to continue on that, so I think, you know, lots of people, when they start up a company, they have clear ideas on the market, they're entering, the amount of money they can make and everything. And you all are, you're more focused right now on building a great product that fits the market. So the so-called product market fit before actually thinking about the business model. Have you had a look yet at the market size? Because for me, it seems like a huge market opportunity because it's like basically touches anyone that goes out every once in a while, correct? It's massive. It's so big that it actually doesn't even make sense to look at the TAM or the SAM or the SOM. It's so massive. It doesn't even have to just be nightlife. Like in our team discussions about product, we don't even, we think about like, well, we, I want to know how many people in California, right? Which beaches are crowded on a hot day? Where are the people at? Which beaches? When I want to go to the grocery store, is there parking at this grocery store? Or is it, should I just wait to go to Costco? Because right now it's ridiculous. It's crazy. So there's, it's, it's broader than just nightlife. And so I think when we think about market, it's almost anybody that would use uh, Google Maps, any, like any time. It's anybody that would use any of the navigation apps. It's anybody that would use even Instagram to find a venue or to look at something or to, it's a lot of people that would use Pinterest to pin a cool place that they want to visit. And, you know, to be added to the list, if you ever go international, restaurants and, you know, brunch specifically, like for me in Paris, like whenever you go on a Sunday to find a good brunch, it's like, you never know if you're going to wait two hours before you get inside or like 10 minutes. Um, so I think, yeah, the market is big. There is a sense of, there's definitely a great use case for it. Like I could use it in Paris, to be honest. Because uh, like, if you tell me tomorrow, I know in advance whether or not I'm going to wait in lines to do, you know, to do an activity or just to go to the restaurant, I would sign up right away. Um, so we are getting towards the end of the call. And besides circles, which I think we covered, except if you have something else to, that you want to say on circles specifically. One thing that comes to mind only, it's like, okay, how do you, when you asked about like the total number of downloads, so we have like 200 users, I'd say, right? Now these users, who are they? They're the content creator ambassadors. So how do you find these people? It doesn't matter what type of business you have. The way that you find that first group of users is going to be different than how we get to 10,000 or how we get to 100,000. And so just be creative about it and don't be afraid to do something that doesn't scale. For us, we sent, this is how we found these people. We went on Instagram. We looked at all the best top bars in San Francisco and we saw all the top tagged photos. So if you tagged a photo at this location, you're going to get a DM from our team that says, hey, we're building an app that shows you which places are busy and slow and allows you to see what a place looks like in real time before you go. Would you use something like this? And of course, if you're out at bars getting tagged in photos a lot, it's probably something that you would use, right? So they would message back and say, yeah, totally. And then we would essentially put them on a list. And that is how we kind of got that first crop of users that just aren't our friends. That makes a lot of sense. And I love how creative you are in terms of finding those first users because they are keys to building the startup and to building the app. But equally, you don't want them to be there for the wrong reasons. Because like if you were to say, well, come on the app and I'm going to pay you a thousand dollars to you know, post a video. Do you even know if they like the app? Like, or are they? To this point, you want to avoid making things transactional. You want to make these early people feel a part of something that they're, as you grow, you're going to be taking their input and it's an ongoing thing. It's not just you do this for me and I'll do this for you. They're like referral programs are beneficial. And there's times when it's a, it's a great growth strategy, not in the very, 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 very beginning. Definitely. And look, it's the same for me for the podcast. I've got to convince people to listen to someone they don't know. And just, you know, have 45 minutes of their time with myself and a guest in their headphone and listen to it. 
and it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. But then, of course, like the, the rewards come afterward. And for now, like, you know, I've told my friends, hey, look, I've got a podcast. If you want to listen to it, please do. But if you actually don't want to listen to it, please don't actually. Like, I don't care about the numbers for now. I'm more like, you know, I want to receive the real feedback from people that are actually enjoying the, the show or enjoying podcasts of all. So quick question about the future. How do you see circles in the future? Do you see circles in other cities, in other type of, uh, I would call them products, like not only nightlife, but also activities? Like what's the future for the app? Yeah. Ideally, we're everywhere, right? Anywhere that anywhere where people can connect and encourage them to get out of the house. I think we've all kind of been isolated a little bit post-COVID. I know I have. And as I've gotten older, it's harder to get out of the house. And that's kind of part of our mission is just like we want to inspire people to get out and go have fun. You're in Paris. There's so many cool things happening right now in Paris that you have no idea about. And maybe if you knew more about them and you could see them and feel them, it would encourage you to go out. And then when you're out, good things happen. We meet cool people. We have connections. Sometimes bad things happen. We spend too much money or meet the wrong person. But nine times out of 10, it's a positive, right? So I want to see circles. We want to see circles in cities everywhere. And eventually it kind of just being the de facto. I land in X city or I'm here on any time of the day. I want to know what's happening around me. This is the platform that you go to to kind of help decide that. No, definitely. And, you know, I'm telling you again, in Paris, it would be a huge win because like it's such a crowded city um, in a small space. Like there's a lot of people per square meters, if you will. So it's like an app that would tell you how many people are in a certain place at a certain time of the day would work amazingly because people would just, you know, spread a bit more towards other restaurants or other venues if they were able to know in advance. Um, We've got 10 minutes left. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. First thing, how did you become a startup influencer? How did that happen? As you learn, when you start something new, you suck, right? This is, just, this is universal. When babies are small, they don't know how to walk. They just, but they keep trying, right? When you're, you're starting out on your podcast journey. You're going to look back on your first podcast in a year from now and be like, man, I got so much better. If you look at Joe Rogan's first podcast, He's one of the biggest podcasters in the world. His first episodes were horrible, but it's just, he just got better. It just got better. And it was the same thing, like getting back to your question, the LinkedIn top voice. I was learning five years ago, I started this journey and I was just like learn mode. I would just learn, 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 make mistake, make mistake, learn, learn, make mistake, make mistake. This was just like a cycle. And then you realize after a certain amount of time that you have a lot to offer other people who are taking on that similar journey that you took and maybe aren't as far along. And I don't know, just like one day I'm like, you know, I'm reading a bunch of people's stuff on LinkedIn. Not to say that my advice is better or not, but there's actually like a lot of good advice I could share that I'm not really seeing out there. And I know people would benefit from it because I'm literally living it and I've done it and I'm doing it. I'm still making a lot of mistakes. And so that's where it kind of, I got inspired just to let's put my let's put some info out there to help other founders. You know, I, I love helping other people. I think in Silicon Valley in general, there's this ethos of we all know how hard it is to start a company because a lot of people have done it. And we want to help anyone else who's attempting to do it because you know how lonely and difficult and challenging it is, even though people don't talk about it. And that was kind of my my give back or it still is my give back to like the new startup founders that are out there or people that have started companies. And so, yeah, on LinkedIn, I just share, try to do three posts a week and I don't plan them. It's just something that's either on my mind or my heart. That's pretty cool. Actually, I like how it came across as you're really trying to help people with the knowledge you've acquired over the years, which I think is amazing. I think a lot of people are actually benefiting from what you're doing. Um, I'm actually benefiting from it. Like I've seen your content. I actually love it. Um, the, the monthly investors of day is, I think was a big hit, at least in terms of the numbers I've seen. I was like, oh, that's uh went kind of viral for LinkedIn. Uh, but look, we have two more questions, um, getting towards the end of the call in two sentence, what is the best and worst advice you received? 
I'll just give maybe advice that I like to give is if you have something that's on your heart or on your mind and it's been there for a long time, then you need to explore it. And the advice that I would say as you explore it in the very beginning is maybe don't tell too many people about it when the idea is still in its infancy. People naturally tend to lean towards safety and they want you to be happy and secure. If you start telling people about your idea too soon, it's human nature for them to poke holes in it and ask all these questions as to why it wouldn't work. Not even that they're bad people. This is just human nature. So my advice would be if you're feeling something and it's been on your heart or your mind for a long time, go do it. Just keep quiet about it for a little bit. As you're putting your ducks in a row, then there's a time when you need to stop being quiet about it. Because I think people on LinkedIn, especially, they put building and stealth. They do this way too long because I think they're feeling a little insecure about their product or where they are. And so maybe the second part of that advice is at some point, you're just going to have to put it out there. It's not going to be perfect. The product's not going to be all you envisioned, but that's how it starts. Love it. No, and I, I like how you think about if you have something on your heart or on your mind, just go and do it. Um, at least for me, it was the case. Like I wanted to do a podcast for two years now, you know, and I wasn't telling anyone about it. I was just researching how to do it. What's, you know, type of equipment I needed, what type of software, how do you get guests and everything. And at some point I was like, well, now is the time I've got to go and do it. And the thing is with a podcast, you have to actually publish it online. Or at least like if you just post it on Spotify, it's probably never going to work and no one's going to listen. So you're never going to get feedback. So I was like, I need to share it on LinkedIn, which is scary um, at the beginning, but then you get better at it. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any last word for the audience? No, I just, I, I appreciate you what you're doing. And it was fun having this conversation. I'd say, yeah, anyone in the audience who listens to this, if they want to connect with me on LinkedIn, please do. And if you connect with me, just drop a little you know, message that said, Hey, I listened to you on, on the podcast. I'm totally willing and want to help any way that I can. Um, cause yeah, I know this journey is, is not easy, but it's worth it. Definitely. Well, that's a, a great way to wrap up the podcast for today. Uh, thank you, Kevin. 